This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauretsen. On this edition of the podcast, it's a conversation about opera camp and the powerful life lessons young people ages 9 to 17 learn during the exciting and intense three-week experience. I'm joined by Jordana Gessler of the Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust, Tina Watkins-Quay of the Watts Labor Community Action Committee, and Stacy Brightman of LA Opera. And actually, I'll let them introduce themselves too, so you know whose voice matches which name. My name is Jordana Gessler, and I am the Director of Education at Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust. Tina Watkins-Quay, I'm the General Manager of Development at the Watts Labor Community Action Committee. I'm Stacy Brightman. I'm Vice President for LA Opera Connects, which is our branch for learning, engagement, and community. And LA Opera Connects, formerly known as the uh, Education Department of Los Angeles Opera, right? Yeah, Education and Community Engagement. <laughs> A good long name. But it's now Connects, and um, that's what we're actually talking about here. Um, in the context of Opera Camp, which is in full swing as we're speaking right now, um, Stacy, first, uh, why don't you just tell us about some of the connections with our friends at uh, these organizations here? Absolutely. It's a delight to be here today again. And uh, while all the exciting rehearsals and staging are going on up on our fourth floor in our rehearsal rooms for Opera Camp, where we have about 85 students ages 9 through 17 learning about opera by doing an opera. And we always talk about the, the twin goals of Opera Camp as a very, one of our foundation programs, one of our core programs for LA Opera Connects is that students, whatever their experience is in terms of performing, wherever they are on this, on that spectrum, whether they're brand new to it, whether they're quite advanced, as long as they're curious and, they, and then they have a desire to perform, that they can come into Opera Camp and that we, first and foremost, we will challenge them. We are going to stretch them. We are going to ex- build their skills and take them the next several levels. So there's absolutely arts training. But just as important and, and equal to that is to instill in our students who come from all over L.A. County a really deep and profound understanding that when you have the power of story, when you have the power of being a young artist, there's a tremendous responsibility. The power of storytelling can be used for either good or ill. So how are you going to use it? How are you going to make that choice? And how are you going to have the discipline to investigate and to really try to be worthy of the stories that you've been given? And so then to carry out this, this these two twin goals, it honestly just wouldn't be possible without our partners, without the Watts Labor Community Action Committee, and without the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust. It would literally not be possible because we purposely select and commission and engage with the help of these partner organizations operas for young people that tell important stories and particularly that have um, young people as the agents for change at the center of it. And we, we just could not do this so from from the get go, from the idea from the idea of for these commissions, for the review and the development of the librettos and of the operas, we have come to both of these organizations for their expertise, for their help, and thank goodness they are extraordinarily generous, loving, opera loving people <laughs> um, who who run these organizations and who are at the table today with us. And then it doesn't stop there. 
after we have now then been producing the these operas for young people that have these important stories at the center of it, we still need their expertise and we still need their help and we still couldn't do it without them. And so that's something uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about today, but how um, it really is a, a, a partnership of all of these organizations kind of surrounding and welcoming students into these powerful histories and hopefully creating better and more powerful futures. Hmm. Well, that's quite an introduction. Um, <laughs> can each of you tell me um, how you first got connected with LA Opera and sort of how that first initial conversation went? You know, it's one of those things where I feel as if I've always known LA Opera, even though I'm not from Los Angeles. I've always really loved opera. And when we first started talking... 10 years ago? 12 years ago? Years ago. A long time (laughs) ago. Several years ago. um, And working with Opera Camp and really, as Stacey said, being a partner in the community is incredibly important for us as well. Because learning from one another, I think, is the most important way to create bonds. And that's really what we do. We're learning from one another. We are each an expert on something. And so it's important to come together. And Working with the opera camp and seeing students not only doing something that they truly love, but learn about history through that vehicle, I think is incredible. All art is a story form. Um, Everything is storytelling in its own way when it comes to the arts. And I think that these students are really becoming stewards to history and representing it and expressing it in their own way. And it's a beautiful partnership and it's a beautiful program to work with. Hmm. I love that you described the the storytelling and the art that it is because at WLCAC, the main way that we connected with LA Opera is that our response to a major incident of community violence was to find a better way to tell the story, find a way to make sure that people understand. And the incident was in 92. There was this huge rebellion. And so we decided to tell the story of our community and make sure that people could heal from that. And fast forward about 20 years, a mutual friend and artist introduced WLCAC because of his awareness of our civil rights exhibit to Stacey Brightman. And they asked us to consult on the libretto for Then I Stood Up. And so we were able to kind of marry these worlds, you know, where storytelling was at the center of it and form a partnership. So, Tell me more about Then I Stood Up, uh, the work that you just referenced. What is this piece about? Uh, then I Stood Up, and, and we're doing Then I Stood Up, a civil rights cycle this year, is actually a beautiful piece that knits together large suites of music from, first of all, uh, Brundabar, opera by Hans Krasa, that was written shortly before the Holocaust by uh, Hans Krasser was a Jewish composer who wrote it for the Jewish orphanage in Prague. It's not clear if it was performed there, but it was smuggled into the concentration camp at Theresienstadt, just not too far outside of Prague, and performed there that we know of about 55 times by the children in the camp as a form of spiritual resistance. So that piece, uh, a piece called Friedel, um, which we commissioned, which is about Friedel Dicker Brandeis, who was a teacher... Bauhaus teacher who also was sent to that same concentration camp and gave art lessons to the children there um, as her form and her way of reminding students that they were fully human uh, and had beautiful potential that needed to be uh, honored and protected through art lessons, um, even at a time when 
when the Nazis are trying to tell you you are less than human. Uh, the third piece is a piece that we worked with on the Japanese American National Museum. It's called The White Bird of Poston, and it's about Japanese American internment at the Poston camp, which strangely, uh, even as a Californian who I thought I knew my history really well, I was shocked to learn that this was a Japanese internment camp, a concentration camp, if you will, on a Native American reservation. So, if you will, a, a concentration camp on a concentration camp. Um, and in fact, it was actually even run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs for a while during World War II. And then the, the titular piece, the piece that knits it all together, is uh, a large, beautiful opera that, uh, that we, as Tina mentioned, that we worked together on. Uh, then I stood up, and it really highlights and tells the story of some of the young, young heroes of the African-American civil rights movement. Emmett Till and Carlotta Walls Lanier are, are characters in this. And, and it's particularly powerful, I, I hope, when it's being performed by 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds. And if you see, wow, these are the heroes that you may not always hear about, but they were your age when they changed the world. Mm -hmm. so. What is the impact that you see with young people as they both learn about these stories, but not just learn about them, not just find out information, but actually sort of embody these characters and um, and help to then tell these stories. What what are you looking for in these young people, and what surprises do you get when, when you work with young people? Their innocence. Um, we never underestimate the, the power of what we're doing when we give a civil rights tour at WLCAC um, to influence the way people think. And I've given tours as young as to a six-month-old when I was <laughs> carrying my baby um, and to folks who were octogenarians and higher. And we had the pleasure of touring about 80 students from opera camp a few days ago. And, you know, one of the little girls asked me, she couldn't have been more than like 13, and she said, do you carry any bitterness about the racism that you've seen in America? And it was... It was not an accusation, but to know that they're processing on that level. And then someone else asked, you know, what's the disco, disco ball in the ceiling for? <laughs> and so they have, um, their minds are still being shaped. Their thought processes are, st are still being shaped. And our hope is that we can get them to be analytical, that we can get them to reevaluate the sort of passive stories they're being told and the narratives that they're being told and make sure that they form their own understanding um, and that, that we understand that that has the power to shape their life. And so seeing them respond either emotionally or intellectually is just, it's out of this world. It's such a privilege. I'm curious about your response to a 12 or 13 year old who asks about carrying bitterness. Heck yes, I'm a, <laughs> black, I'm a black woman, I'm about 40 years old. Um, and my history is unique in Los Angeles. I grew up in the Watts neighborhood, which has gone through major demographic shifts. In the 20s, it was primarily white and ag agricultural. In the 60s, it was industrial and mostly African-American. And now it's still industrial, mostly Latino. And I spent my entire educational career in a very affluent white area of Los Angeles, Palos Verdes, from pre-kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. Um, and so I had this unique background that was like cross-cultural but it was maybe a few years ago I've got a three-year-old my husband and I were cracking jokes little innocuous jokes and as we watched him pick up everything else we did and everything else we said we said oh my gosh we can't it's a form of resilience to joke about things and a coping mechanism to joke about things but we were like we can't allow our son 
to pick these things up. And so I had to really work on forgiveness and making sure that I didn't carry anything unhealthy about this experience that I had lived in America that was very real because I encountered racism consistently and still do. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. so that's so powerful, though, to, you know, to recognize what you're passing on, even, you know, unintentionally, of course, but um, but it's so much there and it's so much part. And from the other standpoint of, of people who um, exhibit racism in their lives, like it, this is how easily it gets passed to the next generation. Um, what about for you at the, the Museum of the Holocaust and both there and at Opera Camp? You know, here at Opera Camp, like um, to tell the stories of, of uh, young people in concentration camps um, performing music, you know, that must be an incredibly powerful um, experience. I believe, yes, it is. And seeing students come into this story, I think is very empowering for them that they have been entrusted with something that is precious and that we believe that they can carry these stories. And I think they come to that with a sense of pride. And when many, when we talk about Theresienstadt, most of the kids who passed through there were murdered. So how do we commemorate people? How do we commemorate people whose names we may or may not know, whose ages we may or may not know? And perhaps this is the best way to do it, is to give them a voice, to give their memory a voice, and to say a child played the same role and that child was dehumanized. And so I want to ensure that their humanity remains intact and is shared with the community. And I think that's an incredible experience for the students and then also for the audience and not just the audience in the theater, but for all of us who get to witness these kids bring life to those unknown children. Uh, I think that's so important for creating a more dignified world, which is something that I believe all of our organizations are trying to do right now and create a space where students can say, I am witnessing a dehumanizing moment or somebody is doing something that is not nice to someone else, I need to stand for human dignity. I need to stand up and say something because I've learned this hmm. or I've had this experience. I'm curious to what extent present day comes into these conversations. So all of a sudden, you know, the country is having a discussion about the term concentration camp. Um, all of a sudden we're, you know, really in a detailed way remembering the Japanese internment camps and deciding whether or not we want to, on an individual basis to call those concentration camps or or something else. Um, and we're seeing young people being put in these situations that um, it's 2019 and maybe this shouldn't be the case. How do you tackle, uh, maybe this shouldn't be the case, of course this shouldn't be the case, but um, how do you tackle the difficult conversations that relate to present day? Well, I really look to these two women to help us and guide us a lot, um, and they have, and uh, as well as uh, incredibly important leadership and guidance from uh, some other organizations, including Facing History and Ourselves, um, which really specialize in teaching um, these stories and investigating civil rights um, uh, with students. One way that we approach it as artists, funny enough, is to take a page from the uh, arts handbook um, and arts education handbook, which talks about VAPA, which is, I don't know if it's a phrase that gets bandied around at many cocktail parties, but <laughs> VAPA, VAPA stands for Visual and Performing Arts Standards. And an arts education 
is if you really break it down into its components, its to its framework, it's supposed to include um, a lot more than just making the show. It's supposed to include artistic expression, um, meaning what are the words, what's the vocabulary, and that that's the starting place. You've got to have words to start to understand what is it we're seeing, what is it we're hearing. And so I use a word like concentration camp very advisedly, the same way I would use a soprano versus <laughs> versus a baritone, you know, I, you know, that you really understand the terminology and that therefore you can use the right words. We do a lot of training not only in the artistic vocabulary but in some uh, really important human rights vocabulary. So, in fact, we've, we've been talking a lot about what is a civil right versus a human right. What is discrimination? What is bias? What is propaganda? Um, what is genocide? Um, really trying to make sure that we have, that's a starting place, to have some of the right vocabulary to discuss these things. Um, and then, as part of an arts education, you have, creative expression, um, uh, 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 I sort of said before, artistic perception, creative expression, social and historical context. It's, in you know, again, it's just strictly speaking about the arts, we are, the mandate is that we should understand the social and historical context and, and, and let that be deeply come through our performance. And then uh, we're all supposed to be able to make cross-curricular connections and relevance and to see how does this apply to the world in which I live. So that's from the, from, you know, from the, uh, the, the arts teacher <laughs> side of it, which tends to mirror, I think, a little bit of what, you know, what my, my colleagues here would also say. You know, how do you begin to do this? For me, it starts with the vocabulary. And for us, it's uh, some of it is just drawn out by the history. Our civil rights tour um, includes, and again, the language, um, an analysis, a very you know simple analysis, depending on the age of the tourist, but um, of our constitution and the founding documents of our nation and what the global historical context was when we were founded, and that sets up a certain context and then it brings it all the way forward to the 92 rebellion so you cover a few hundred years <laughs> with folks and that in and of itself can't help but provide some you know relatable point and then we make sure that we tie in you know question what you're reading in the news seek out opinions that are different from yours um, we openly acknowledge like we are are, are pushing a certain amount of information on you, question the things that we're telling you, um, and ask them to challenge their thinking and always leave them with something. I think over lunch, Jordana mentioned that it's important to leave with inspiration, but I remind folks, like, connecting is it. Sometimes you just look in someone's eyes. Sometimes you make sure you don't laugh at a joke that's inappropriate, or you find someone who doesn't look or naturally gravitate to the same things that you do. And those small things can make a world of difference in, in changing the way we all relate to and understand one another. So. And exactly, I think, what Tina said earlier about analytical skills. One of the things that we really stress at the museum is teaching students not to just accept everything as fact, but to really think about the information that they're understanding. And lining our halls are covers from the LA Times and the LA Examiner from 1933 to 1945. And each of the articles about the Holocaust are subtly just lightened. 
And we want kids to understand how do we access news? How do we receive it? How do we understand it? What do we do about it? What did people then do about news? What are people doing today about news? And I think those conversations are really important because kids have a sense of curiosity that adults tend to lose. They're really interested in learning. And so if you point them in the right direction, they will continue going there. And that's something that we really believe is powerful. And we also want to make it personal. We use stories of things that happened to people, people like you and me, and really for them to understand that this didn't happen in a vacuum. Aliens didn't come from space and do this. Human beings did this to one another. And what is the capacity of human beings in the worst possible way? What is also the capacity in the most courageous way? And that's something we want kids of all ages, um, adults as well, to really understand when they learn about this history or when they do one of these programs. But that's such a skill, right, to take a whole bunch of information and prioritize it or, you know, pull out, you know, here's here's a piece of something that's telling me something really important, right? Like along those lines of what you have at the museum, an artist friend of mine, uh, Susan Silton, is one of her projects right now is taking newspapers from the 30s and leading up to World War II and just showing how the articles about what Hitler was doing were just, you know, right there next to the articles about, you know, the stock market and, you know, whatever else was happening in the world. You know, and even just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, like the fifth anniversary of the death of Eric Garner, you know, the coverage of that and and the coverage of the decision not to charge the officer involved, you know, just sort of appeared alongside all of our other stories. And it's like, wait a minute, like, these are things that ought to be with flashing lights and, you know, big, giant, bold headlines, right? Yeah, my favorite news story that we have, and I always point it out, it's actually our only non-cover. It's the second page. And it's about the farmer's market, and it's from late November. And what's going on late November in America? You're getting ready for Thanksgiving. So there are articles about what pie to make, how to prepare the best turkey. And the article next to it is half of Jews of Europe dead. And the information is always there. It's a choice that people are making. And... That is one of the things I point out. You know, what does it mean to open up this newspaper and read an article about Turkey next to an article about murder? And how do we understand that? How do we access that information? And then the next step is once we recognize it, that's only when we can do something about it. Mm -hmm. So how do you empower young people to employ and deploy these kinds of skills? Picking up where you just left off, what do you do about it? Um, The most important element, I think, is community. That when you are able to, when you feel isolated or feel disconnected, you also feel disenfranchised and disempowered. And so creating a sense of community, drawing the commonalities between all of us when we're taking these tours, I think is paramount. Um, We never think it's too early to start encouraging people to vote. (laughs) (laughs) And every chance I get to tie that into the Constitution because it's the oldest battle of the Constitution. I remind folks of that. Um, but it's it's really looking out, to, to oversimplify it, I call it uh, looking for the opposite perspective. And so if you, I encourage people to read newspapers that um, they don't think are credible, 
and see what that information looks like. And then when you compare it to a new a journalistic, you know, work of art, <laughs> it's it's really highlighted how, you know, something can be alleged or there can be no source of the information or there can be an estimate. And so all of these little things begin to to stare at you from the page when you compare works. And I think sometimes we almost hide from misinformation and that can make it easier to to fail to recognize it when it's presented as real information, which happens a lot nowadays. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why this has continued to be an extraordinary partnership um, with these two institutions and these amazing leaders at these institutions has been uh, kind of heart, mind, soul engagement. You know, it's never just information coming at you intellectually. Both Museum of the Holocaust and Watts Labor Community Action Committee, I, I would I would love for you to describe yourselves. How do you you engage emotionally as well as intellectually with even a nine year old? You know, and our opera campers are nine to seventeen. Mm-hmm. We really challenge them. We make it really hard to say, please, you know, share this sometimes really dark, dark history that can be overwhelming. Help us share that and and have it land in the right way. So, I mean, I think you both do it brilliantly. Yeah, is there a good answer to the how question? I think empathy is one of the most important things to discuss and creating an environment that's conducive to students connecting with history, with people, making it really personal, and having conversations about feelings. And I think a lot of times people shy away, even from misinformation, but also from trauma and pain. And we need to push back a little and really confront it because until we confront it we're not going to be able to change it and so we try to have genuine conversations with students and visitors at the museum about this and about how history is relevant and not just have it be a lecture we really want it to be inquiry-based learning having hearing the thoughts and ideas of the people we're with And I think that's always really important because if you're not listening, why is the other person going to listen to you? You really need to have a conversation. And again, having conversations with people who have different experiences and learning from one another. I really, truly believe that education is the best way to combat hate because the more we get to know one another, the more we are empathetic and less likely to be mean or to bully or to other. And that's, I think, really important um, is just getting to hear each other's stories. Mm. Identifying the emotions is a huge part of it for us. Um, So much of the tour, I mean, we start in a recreation of a slavehold and then it moves into a recreation of a Mississippi Delta Road during the Reconstruction era and it's very dark and represents the time period where lynchings were happening. And so identifying not only that the tour is intense, but this is likely going to make you sad. It's going to make you angry. It may uh, make you feel guilt or shame. And these are all things that... Um, we we purposely haven't automated our tour because it's important for the tour guide to be able to sense what's going on and respond mm. to the folks who are on the tour. Um, depending on the age range, I'll use myself as an example or, um, you know, just simplify things so that they can understand, for example, in this group that we toured recently, um, instead of taking them through the slavehold, 
I had to explain, you know, as quickly as possible what it would be like to be, you know, taken from your family in the middle of the night. I gestured, I happened to be 37 weeks pregnant, and I used myself as an example that if someone were, were taken on the middle passage on this long voyage early on in their pregnancy, they may have to have their baby in this space away from their family. And these are the kinds of things that rip people apart and can destroy them. But there was a, a purpose for it. And it lasted for a really long time and it ended. And what are we going to do now? And how does that still affect us now? And what, how do we recognize that quote unquote purpose, you know, when it rears its head again? Are we, are we uh, using other human beings for profit or for um, ill gain? Or are we really looking out for the best in one another? And so, finding the words to put those things together um, really lays with the tour guide. I don't think there's a specific way you can script it or um, write it out. It has to be in the moment and about the experience that's happening. Well, and then you, you make it very personal and you share your emotion via song. Um, When I first took the tour with you, I was kind of destroyed Tina happens to be also a really beautiful <laughs> singer by uh, how you shared the song Strange Fruit. I don't know if you don't mind sharing a little bit of what you what you do. Sure. So the tour is all um, experiential. There's very little text on the walls, which I know is similar. But part of the tour includes this one song that kind of sums up what I call our complexity because we're the land of the free but then in our founding documents we didn't quite get it right putting it lightly Um, and the lyrics that were written by this Jewish man who was touring the south and saw people being lynched he was a poet and the the symbolism of human beings who are supposed to be the greatest thing that our our nation produces is incredible people right incredible American citizens um, were displayed on these trees like rotten fruit and so he managed to capture the dichotomy of you know the beautiful landscape of America and this dark dark truth that no one wants to face and I was saying over lunch I throw all my vocal ability at it and it's jazz and gospel and blues and opera and everything Mm -hmm. to help highlight that so that when it's talking about the the you know rotten flesh on the tree you really hear that in my voice and all of it is um, very emotional and even that you know folks I've learned they'll try to applaud because they don't know how to respond. We don't know how to deal with things that elicit a deep emotion in us. And I immediately have to come back out and into the real world and say, you know, we don't applaud that. We just deal with it. (laughs) It's a little more eloquent, but you deal with it and you find ways to heal and move on by facing it, as I think you guys said. But then when when words are failing or words are not enough, that's when we go to song, Mm -hmm. right? And and you share that and you demonstrate that. And that's exactly the same with Brindabar. You know, when children were in hell, it was song that reinforced and restored humanity or could be our way of connecting with one another. And in a sense, but you know, our children, our opera campers, are experiencing that truth in all of these, you know, by their visits with Museum of the Holocaust and at Watts Labor Community Action Committee, and and so all of us is a really long-winded way of saying how the how, <laughs> yes, the how. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, opera camp is these incredibly powerful stories. Opera camp is the power of music. 
Opera camp is fun. Opera camp is uh, so many things. For someone who's uh, contemplating becoming a part of opera camp, um, what what do you tell them? I say it's it's going to be an extraordinary journey. It's going to be a very, very intense journey. Again, it's right now it's three weeks long. It's Monday through Friday, except for then the final day when we have the performances. And I think the best definition of community that I've ever heard, this word that we use an awful lot, <laughs> Uh, the best definition that I've ever heard is it's a group of people who make something together. So whether it's we've made a temple together, whether we've made bread together, whether we've made a song together, whether we've made an opera together. So these really diverse young people from all over Los Angeles, if not even further, all these ages, diverse heritage, economic backgrounds, certainly experience, and they all come together, and this is not a competition. We all have to start together, and we all have to finish together. And if you think you might be, if you're curious, if you might be ready for that for that challenge, come on in. Come on in. No barriers. Come on in. We're ready to do it. Because again, we think music story opera changes the world for the better. And that it starts with a very personal experience, but you know something that's personal can't help but then become uh, exterior. So that's what I would say mm. to somebody. It's maybe a little bit longer than an elevator ride, pitch, but it's, it's close. In a skyscraper, maybe. It's a skyscraper, yeah. <laughs> uh, what about for each of you? I would say dream big and think freely. Mm-hmm. Um, we A lot of what Stacy just described resonates with us, but um, it's so much more than just, you know, learning music um, or discipline or connecting with other individuals. The way this is set up, you really are challenged to change the way you think. And you're also, whether you become a famous opera singer or not, to dream bigger and to think, you know, bigger. So mm-hmm. I definitely agree. And I think it creates a rich fabric it's almost a tapestry really when you see students coming together and they don't know each other they're delving into heavy material and they're creating a support system for one another and then they're sharing it with the larger community and you know I think opera camp is incredible and I think the way that you guys do it is incredible because you're not just creating a space for opera you're creating a space to really change the world to really change the mindset of the students, to really have them go out and think, how does opera, how is that relevant? And it is relevant. And then that's the same skill if they see a painting or a photograph or a drawing or a poem or a song, they can really think, what is the relevance here? And how do I take this forward? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's really incredible about this program. As, as you were speaking, it struck me how incredible it is that they not only get the opportunity to deal with this heavy material, but as we grow up, usually when we confront things like this, you do that in a vacuum, you reconcile it in a vacuum, and you're lucky if anyone else ever thinks the way you do or sees, you know, from your perspective. And in this case, the kids are not only there as a support system, but they are literally applauded. (laughs) There is a performance and there is a community there that is joy. Somehow that sort of ends, you know, and and embeds the embeds it deeply. I, I do think especially when they come to your venues and they talk with the survivor and they talk with folks who've had these experiences firsthand and you've entrusted that to the young people and to our students. And it becomes, like you said, then somehow it becomes a collective ownership 
And when we came and we visited the Watts Labor Community Action Committee, we were having a, a really intense conversation, and I think it was at the end of it, one of the persons who was giving us the tour said, and now, welcome to the movement. You know how, oh my goodness, to be welcomed into the opportunity to be part of the solution and the answer and, and, and to be on the right side and to feel like you have power is all embedded in And as you said, then you even get applause at the end and you've made something that's beautiful at the end. You've made a community, but you've made an opera. You've made discoveries, dream big. You've got to dream big, think big. And I think once you've done that, I don't know that you could ever go back to thinking small or, or dreaming small once you dream big and think big. That's Stacy Brightman of L.A. Opera with Tina Watkins-Quay of the Watts Labor Community Action Committee and Jordana Gessler of Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust. Watkins-Quay and Gessler are some of the partners with L.A. Opera for the summer's opera camp, which is wrapping up this week. The opera campers, ages 9 to 17, will perform Then I Stood Up, a civil rights cycle. On Saturday, August 3rd at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, the performance is open to the public. For more information, visit laopera.com. Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust is open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Fridays when they close at 2. Admission is free. More information at lamoth.org. Tours at the Watts Labor Community Action Committee are available by appointment. More information is available at wlcac.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. Behind the Curtain.